Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Only 13 days until possible economic catastrophe. And guess what? Your elected leaders have opted to take a pause on trying to prevent it. The lead starts right now. A major snag with debt negotiations up against the clock and the government set to run out of money to pay its bills in less than two weeks now, putting everything from your job to Social Security checks to your retirement fund all at risk. And yet negotiations right now, they ain't happening. On the other side of the world, Biden is meeting with major economic power leaders in Japan and the Ukrainian president announced a surprise visit of his own there to make a major ask. Plus, a new name. Officially added to the Republican field of candidates for president, making the case why Donald Trump should not be the GOP nominee. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start today with our money lead. Talks to avoid an economic catastrophe in the United States have hit something of a snag. Republican negotiators walked out of a meeting on the debt ceiling with the White House today, saying they decided to press pause because talks with White House aides were, quote, not productive. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy today seemed radically less optimistic on a potential deal than he did just yesterday. Yesterday, I really felt we were at the location where I could see the path. The, the White House is just, look, we can't be spending more money next year. We have to spend less than we spent the year before. It's pretty easy. The White House is today attempting to project optimism nonetheless, saying a deal remains possible despite, quote, real differences Between the two sides, to make things even more complicated, of course, President Biden is halfway around the world, meeting with his G7 counterparts in Japan right now, a summit that's going to now include a last-minute in-person appearance by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, as Biden today affirmed U.S. support for fighter jets to be given to Ukraine. But back home, the two sides have only 13 days to reach a deal before the U.S. government runs out of money to pay its bills, according to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. So let's get straight to CNN's Phil Mattingly, who's traveling with President Biden in Japan, also with the CNN's Melanie Zunona on Capitol Hill. Melanie, um, there was not that long ago, just yesterday, optimism that the two sides could reach a deal perhaps even as, as soon as this weekend. But now talks aren't even going on. What happened? Well, Jake, over the last 24 hours, one thing that we have seen is that both Biden and McCarthy have come under increasing pressure from their left and right flanks, respectively, to not budge, to not give an inch in these negotiations, and to stand up and show that they are fighting for their party's priorities. So that is certainly one of the dynamics that's driving this impasse here. But there are also big differences still when it comes to substance and policy, particularly when it comes to spending cuts. I want to read you what one Republican, Dusty Johnson, a key McCarthy alley, told me not too long ago. He said, we are too far apart on the top line number. McCarthy is holding the line. He knows where the Republican conference is. The gap on top line numbers is not the only problem, but it is the biggest problem. And he also added, we are in bad shape. So 
I would caution here that these types of blow-ups and breakdowns are not uncommon in these types of negotiations. Sometimes they just need to take a step back and cool off before they can come back to the table. But this is a very big setback, especially in terms of the timeline. Negotiators were hoping to have a deal in principle by this weekend so they could get it onto the House floor by next week. So that timeline now is in serious question, Jake. And Phil, you've got some new reporting about what exactly the president's team is taking issue with inside these negotiations. Yeah, Jake, keep in mind the White House has spent weeks laying the groundwork for a rhetorical battle over the scale of the spending cuts Republicans have put in their legislation, have continued to push for behind closed doors in these hours of negotiations between the point people on each side representing uh, these talks. And they simply view, at least according to sources familiar with the matter, that Republicans have not been willing to move very far off of the very deep cuts that they have proposed, and that will continue to be a major issue until that changes. Now, Mel makes a great point. This is not just a single issue problem right now. Across the board, uh, I'm told there are no agreements on any of the key pillars of what uh, lawmakers and aides at the White House believe would formulate an actual deal here. But the reality remains this. Something has to get done. I think Mel makes a great point. We see these blowups all of the time in high-stakes negotiations like this. To some degree, it allows the parties to reset and recalibrate. But when you look at kind of the Rubik's Cube uh, that they're dealing with right now in terms of both the policy, the strategy, but also the vote counts ensuring that they have a coalition to actually get this across the finish line in both the House and the Senate and onto the president's desk, there is a lot of work to do and not a lot of time, Jake. That, of course, is a problem. So, Phil, there's also this other major headline coming out of the G7 in Japan where you're standing right now. Ukrainian President Zelensky uh, headed to meet there to meet meet with these world leaders. Um, And this comes at the same time uh, that Biden is signaling support for allies sending fighter jets to Ukraine. Yeah, really a pair of dramatic developments here in uh, Hiroshima over the course of the last 12 to 15 hours. Now, keep in mind, the president's day was bookended by briefings from his negotiators on the domestic issue that he's dealing with. But on the geopolitical side of things, there is no question the decision by President Vladimir Zelensky to actually show up in person at this G7 summit is critical. It follows kind of a tour of European capitals at each stop in France and Italy and Germany and the UK, securing new commitments for lethal aid, securing new commitments for economic assistance. And that'll be a push here as well. And it all underscores what officials acknowledge. This is a critical moment in the war with the Ukrainian forces uh, nearing their counteroffensive campaign. And as it hits its 15-month mark, the kind of grinding nature of things underscoring the absolute necessity of the durability of the coalition that has been behind Ukraine. Now, when it comes to F-16s, this is also a critical moment. The U.S. and President Biden have been very wary of the idea of supplying Ukraine with F-16s, of training Ukrainian pilots They have not shifted off the idea of the U.S. not providing the planes themselves, but what they are willing to do is allow for the export of those planes from allies. And also, President Biden at the G7 summit uh, yesterday made clear to allies that the U.S. would support training of Ukrainian pilots, a big step forward for something uh, Zelensky has requested repeatedly over the course of the last several months, Jake. All right, Melanie Zanona and Phil Manningly uh, in Hiroshima, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss Democratic Congressman... Rokana of California. Congressman, you have said that you don't think President Biden should even be negotiating with Republicans over the debt ceiling. So let's talk about backup plans. Uh, You have been calling on President Biden to invoke the 14th Amendment, which some say would allow the Treasury to borrow money to pay its bills without approval from Congress. Um, 
President Biden and Secretary Yellen have questioned the legality of that move. Well, Jake, I don't think we should be negotiating in this country about whether we pay our past bills. It's patriotic for America to keep its word and pay the debt. I believe this is spending that past Congresses have authorized. It's the current Congress that's trying to repeal what past Congresses have done. And I believe the secretary has the authority to issue more bonds and make the payment that payments that past Congresses have authorized. Larry Tribe and others believe it would be constitutional. There's another option if things get down to the wire uh, and there's been no movement. Uh, it's called a discharge petition. Basically, you need 218 members of Congress to sign this discharge petition for a bill. And I know there is a Democrat that's written one that would allow just a clean up or down vote on raising the debt ceiling, and then it would go off to the Senate. I don't know if the votes would be there in the Senate. Presumably, uh, if we're really coming down to the wire, maybe people would would move. Are there, there are 213 Democrats. Would 213 Democrats sign off on that? And would you be able to get five Republicans to join them, do you think? Yes, I mean, Brendan Boyle, a close ally of the president's, introduced it. I have signed it. I am confident we can get 213 uh, House Democrats, and I'm hopeful we can get five other uh, Republicans, if push comes to shove, to say we should pay our past debts. Remember, Jake, in 2013, President Obama held his ground, and there was basically a surrender by Boehner uh, on that issue of uh, the debt ceiling, and we were able to pay the debts. Now, I, I grant that McCarthy isn't Boehner, but holding our ground here uh, is not just substantively correct. I think it can be good politics. I also want to ask you uh, about your senator, uh, Dianne Feinstein. Um, she, we have learned that she suffered from previously undisclosed complications of shingles. Uh, she had um, a swelling of the brain. Uh, you and other Democrats have called for her resignation because of her many, many absences, uh, which have um, affected the work of the Senate, um, not to mention, I suppose, previous questions about her cognition. What's your understanding as to what's currently going on? Is she just refusing to resign? Is she aware of her own health issues? Well, it's a really sad situation, Jake. And uh, in Washington, making a gaffe is saying the obvious truth out loud. That's the only thing I did and some others have done. It's painful to watch. And I just wish people who are close to her, uh, who have been friends of hers and her family, will talk to her about doing the right thing and, and, and stepping down with, uh, with dignity. I don't know the situation. I don't know who's making the decisions in that office. I think they, at the very least, owe transparency, whether it's her or someone on her staff, to have uh, a press conference to answer exactly what the truth is of her condition uh, and, and her ability to do the job. What was your reaction to her exchange with those reporters uh, earlier this week? It was sadness. I mean, I, 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 they asked about my call, apparently, for her to step down. And uh, her response was that she never had left, that she's been voting. And look, I, I admire the senator's service. I feel bad for her as, as another human being. I don't put the issue on her. There is someone there who's making these decisions. And whoever it is who her spokesperson is, in my view, should come out and answer questions and, and come on your show, come on other shows. Uh, but the real thing is that there need to be people who are close to her, 
uh, who have that conversation in a loving way and get her to do what I believe is the dignified thing. It is very sad. Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna, thank you so much. And the world lead. The other global issue President Biden is confronting right now today, Biden and other G7 ally leaders rolled out even more sanctions against Russia as the West works on plans to train Ukrainian pilots on fighter jets, including F-16s, despite this show of unity and increasing pressure to sanction Russia, the president of Turkey, Erdogan, is standing firm. He is refusing to join his fellow NATO member nation countries, telling CNN his country has a special and positive relationship with Vladimir Putin. CNN international anchor Becky Anderson sat down with President Erdogan for an exclusive interview. Uh, Becky, thanks for joining us. What does Turkey gain from its relationship with Russia? Trade, in a word, and lots of it, Jake. Energy, tourism, agriculture. Trade to the tune of some $60 billion on a bilateral basis annually. And with the central bank here in full defense mode, trying to avert a further weakening of the Turkish lira, as a cost of living crisis here, a real credibility gap for Turkish assets uh, on international markets. Turkey, President Erdogan, needs Russia and he needs that relationship, which is why he calls it special. And Washington knows that, frustrating as that might be. Look, you and I know that uh, Turkey has, there's been no love lost between successive U.S. administrations and President Erdogan over the um, more than 20 years that he has been leader of this country. And there is no exception when it comes to his relationship with Joe Biden and uh, and this current White House. Um, It's really important to remember that back in the summer of 2020, then presidential candidate Joe Biden um, really criticised President Erdogan's Kurdish policy. He called President Erdogan an autocrat and he said that he supported the Turkish opposition um, in their efforts to defeat uh, the incumbent president here, President Erdogan. And on the campaign trail to what is a highly uh, and increasingly nationalistic audience, On both sides of the um, presidential divide, let me tell you, both for President Erdogan and for the opposition candidate, President Erdogan has found a willing crowd to hear anti-American sentiment. And that is exactly what he's been doing, telling his crowds on the campaign trail that Joe Biden, the U.S. president, is trying to topple him. We discussed that in my exclusive interview with him. Have a listen. Do you genuinely believe as you suggested last Saturday, that Joe Biden wants to topple you. How could someone who is going into a runoff election, instead of completing the election in the first round, be a dictator? That is the reality. We have an alliance with 322 MPs in Parliament, and the leader of this alliance is going to go for the runoffs in the first position. What kind of a dictator is that? So if re-elected, are you saying that you will work with the Biden administration? You can work with the Biden administration? Without a doubt, I will work with Mr. Biden. And if Biden goes, then I will work with whoever replaces him as well. You've said that you don't agree 
with the attitude of the West towards Russia with regard the Ukraine conflict, that the West follows a policy based on provocation. I just want to get your sense of where you believe the West perhaps is going wrong here. Is this military and financial aid that we see at present a provocation to your mind? The West is not leading a very balanced approach. You need a balanced approach towards a country such as Russia, which would have been a much more fortunate approach. For example, the Black Sea Grain Corridor Initiative. We are not only considering the interests and the needs of the Western countries, but also that of the African nations. This Grain Corridor Initiative has been extended for another two months beginning on the 18th of May. How do you think it was possible? It was possible because of our special relationship with President Putin. And to underscore, Jake, just how consequential this presidential runoff is um, on May the 28th, um, don't forget that Turkey still holds the keys to Sweden's accession to the NATO military alliance. President Erdogan told me that he is not ready uh, to sign off on that. And I quote him here, until the offshoots of Turkish terror groups that roam freely on the streets of Sweden are gotten rid of. Of course, that's an allegation that Sweden refutes. But that just underscores the importance uh, that President Erdogan, as Turkish leader, plays on the global stage. What goes on here does not stay here, particularly when it comes to these presidential elections, Jake. All right, Becky Anderson, thank you so much. Coming up, what may be the worst kept secret in politics, Governor Ron DeSantis' plans to run for president. Here his pitch today in, where else? First in the nation, primary state New Hampshire. Plus, back in DeSantis' home state of Florida, why a new immigration law could force workers out of the state and leave critical services high and dry. Plus, moments ago, a judge ruling to keep Jack Tashira in jail, the Air National Guardsman accused of leaking sensitive classified documents. More of what just went down in today's hearing, plus his reported fixation with guns and his horrific bigoted versions of a race war. The 2024 Republican field is growing. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina just filed paperwork to launch his presidential campaign. He did that today. CNN has reported Florida Governor Ron DeSantis plans on making an official next week. But today, as CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports for us now, DeSantis is already making his pitch directly to New Hampshire voters. How are you doing? It smells really good, I'll tell you that. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is hitting the campaign trail. Is that a milkshake? Gearing up to launch his White House bid next week. He's sharpening his electability argument against Donald Trump, telling Republicans it's time to shed their loyalty to the former president if they hope to win back the White House. It's going to require a lot of fight. It's going to require that we do a lot of different things. In a visit to New Hampshire today, DeSantis touted his Florida record as a conservative blueprint for the nation. We passed that in Florida. Even his fallout intensified from his escalating fight with Disney, which pulled the plug on a $1 billion office complex development in Florida. Republican rivals blasted the governor's feud, with Trump suggesting DeSantis had been caught in the mousetrap. DeSantis defended his oversight of the entertainment giant and his Parental Rights in Education Act, which critics have dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill, 
that first sparked his battle with Disney. I know people try to chirp and say this or that. Um, the chance of us uh, backing down from that is zero. After months of flirting with a campaign, DeSantis is poised to formally join the Republican contest next week, convening top donors to a meeting in Miami. Today, he got an early taste of the fight awaiting him. On this sales tax, had a plan to make you pay more. With the sales tax here, and the sales tax there, here tax, there tax, everywhere sales tax. As the Trump super PAC took aim at DeSantis for supporting a national sales tax during his years in Congress, DeSantis brushed aside the criticism and pointed Republicans to his record as governor. It's easy to be a front runner. It's easy to go out and take positions that are really popular at the time. It's harder to dig in and really cut against the grain. The field of GOP presidential candidates is swiftly growing, with Senator Tim Scott filing paperwork today ahead of a formal campaign announcement Monday in South Carolina. Fred Plett, a New Hampshire state representative, said Republicans are sizing up the contenders. They're looking for a candidate, I think, with less baggage that uh, Trump is carrying with them now. Do you think Republicans also are looking for a candidate who can win back at the White House? Yes. Uh, it's not clear who that is right now. And uh, uh, frankly, even though Trump has got uh, his strong supporters, may take a primary, I'm not sure he can win a general election. So talking to Republican voters, that is the central point, winning the general election. So Governor DeSantis presents himself as the man who can do that. He talks again and again about the culture of losing. We're about to see if he can provoke a culture of winning. Next week, he's going to meet in Miami with these Republican donors and then finally jump in with an announcement uh, in his hometown after Memorial Day. But as you said, this is hardly a surprise. Now he has to show that he can actually bring this big campaign only three months until the first debate for these Republicans. Jake. Right. Fascinating stuff. It's on. Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. Governor DeSantis claims a new immigration law taking effect soon in his home state of Florida will ensure that taxpayers there are not footing the bill for illegal immigration and undocumented immigrants themselves. The other side of that argument next. The immigration crisis in our national lead. This was the scene in New York this morning. Just a few of the hundreds of asylum-seeking migrants who arrive in New York every day following last week's expiration of Title 42. Title 42, of course, was the pandemic-era policy that allowed U.S. border officials to quickly turn away and deport asylum-seeking migrants. Now, to handle the influx, New York City just opened its first asylum-seeker arrival center at Manhattan's iconic Roosevelt Hotel, just steps from Grand Central Terminal. The 100-year-old hotel was closed for the last three years. Now it has 175 rooms available for asylum-seeking families and eventually will open hundreds more according to the office of Mayor Eric Adams. Meantime, south of New York and Florida, there is major concern now over a new immigration law that critics say threatens to upend the lives of many illegal immigrant workers and thus some business owners. Starting July 1st, any business employing more than 25 people is required to use E-Verify. That's the federal system that checks the immigration status of employees. CNN's Carlos Suarez speaks to undocumented migrant workers now who are afraid they may have to leave the state. Francisco Maldonado finds himself struggling to ease the fears of workers on his farm in Homestead, Florida. Many are undocumented and all are facing important decisions in the wake of Florida's new immigration law. We're going to try to see if we can make him stay as long as we can. You know, I don't know what's going to happen after July 1st. From now on, it's just rumors and, and just people thinking that they have to leave. 
One of his workers, Faustino, says he knows of workers leaving Florida over the uncertainty. Faustino said he came to the U.S. from Guatemala at the age of 14, but after nearly 20 years of planting and picking fruits and vegetables in South Florida, he's not going anywhere. It's sad that some people are moving or they're scared to go to work. If we don't do these jobs, who's going to do them? We're the ones who have to do this work. The new law, which goes into effect in July, requires a business with at least 25 workers to use E-Verify, a federal program that checks the immigration status of workers, with penalties for employers who knowingly hire undocumented workers. Most farm owners, including Maldonado, say they keep the number of employees under 20. We had a lot more workers, but we cut back a little bit. So, so I think we're still on the right number, and I don't think it's going to affect as much, but we still don't know yet. The impact of the new law goes beyond jobs. Certain hospitals will have to ask patients about their immigration status, and the law makes it a felony to transport someone in the country illegally into Florida. For Governor Ron DeSantis, the expansion of E-Verify is making good on a promise he made in 2018 during his first run for governor. We want businesses to hire citizens and legal immigrants but we want them to follow the law and not do illegal immigrants. And that's not that difficult to do. In response to the law, the national Hispanic rights group LULAC urged immigrants, no matter their status, not to travel to Florida. Locally, immigration advocacy groups like We Count are meeting with workers in agriculture, hospitality and construction to answer questions about the changes. These immigrant workers um, really are the drivers of Florida's economy. And what Florida is doing by the government, by imposing and implementing this law, is really punching down on the communities that make this economy run. For some workers, the fear of losing their job is overwhelming. A 21-year-old nursery worker cried out of frustration, saying she and her three-year-old child have nowhere else to go and no one to turn to. I worry for myself and I worry for others. We're all in this together, and the situation is tough. And Jake, there has been talk of a work stoppage across the state of Florida in protest of this new immigration law. But that is something that immigration groups tell us they're not seeing right now. Some of this debate is being focused around social media with folks taking to Twitter and TikTok and posting videos of empty job sites and construction uh, construction fields as well as some farms. However, every single undocumented worker that we talked to this week told us they can't afford it not to be in these fields. They can't afford it not to be making money and sending that money back home. Jake. All right, Carlos Suarez, thank you so much. Coming up next, 77 minutes of horror. The pain and the demand for answers from parents of children who died or killed in the Uvalde massacre. Stay with us. Nearly one year ago, the lives of 19 fourth graders and two teachers were extinguished by a gunman at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. For parents such as the Rubios, who lost their 10-year-old daughter, Lexi, this has been a year of grief and heartache and waiting, waiting for answers about what happened to their daughter and why police at Uvalde waited 77 minutes before entering the classroom where the gunman was. CNN Shimon Prokopes, who has been an advocate for these families, he sat down with the Rubios for this week's episode of The Whole Story, Surviving Uvalde Inside a School Shooting. What is your understanding of what went wrong that day? 
my understanding is this first group of officers that come in. They're shot at, they retreat, and they never go back in. They let children die in that classroom. Ah. Am I bleeding? Am I bleeding? Am I bleeding? Ah. My wife's classroom. And I can't even explain to you what they've taken from me. He's in the class. It's more than just lives. You know, maybe Lexi's gone immediately. But that's what they've taken from me, those answers. Had they engaged immediately and my child is deceased, then I know in my heart that she wasn't scared very long. But because they waited so long, now I'll never know. I don't know if it was fast, and I don't know if it took 30, 40 minutes. And that's hard. That's hard to sit with. That's devastating, and Shimon joins us now live. Shimon. Do you think the parents, such as the Rubios, are ever going to get answers from law enforcement officials about what happened that day? Hard to say, Jake. I mean, they're still waiting for other reports to come out, other investigations to be completed so they can get these answers. I think you see there Kim Rubio talk about the idea that perhaps her child, how much did her child suffer while waiting for police to kill the gunman? And was there any hope for her to survive had police come in sooner? I mean, these are the many questions that the parents have about that day that they've simply just not been able to get answers for. And so they've turned to us. They've turned to CNN. They know that we have a lot of material. We've been able to obtain through sources the entire case file. We've seen every piece of video. We've heard every interview that investigators did uh, in this case. And what happens is while we're in Uvalde, Jake, filming for this um, special that airs on Sunday night, One of the mothers calls me and says, I want to see the video, the body camera video, the moment that police breached the classroom. And I want to see our kids, her kids survived, uh, being rescued and running out of the classroom. He was shot in the leg. And so we sat with several parents who came to us saying they wanted to see this video, watching uh, as their kids were running uh, out of the classroom. Uh, Two of them shot. Uh, Another one uh, survived, uh, had no injuries, but certainly has a lot of psychological and emotional uh, issues to deal with. But this is what the parents uh, are left with now. They're just trying to figure out, uh, really through us and through the video that we've been allowing them to see, um, how much their kids suffered, what exactly their kids went through so they could try to help in the healing process now, Jake. So they they just wanted to see... What happened, because their kids survived, they wanted to see what happened so they could better understand and help yeah. these, these surviving kids deal with the trauma? That's exactly right. I mean, their kids come to them with stories. They come to them and will tell them things that happened that day still. You know, you never know with these kids. They could be at home and, and something just triggers them. Uh, and they start talking about things, and the parents have no idea what they're talking about. But now they're able to give them answers uh, through this video through some of the information that we've been able to provide to them that authorities have refused to give them. Um, We also show them video where a lot of the survivors after they were rescued were placed on a school bus because there just weren't enough ambulances there. Uh, And they were taken to the hospital on a school bus and several of the survivors who remain the closest of friends to this day who were injured, nearly died, they were all on a school bus together, screaming, begging for help, begging for their parents to come help them. 
Uh, and so we showed them that video as well. And that was for them also a very revealing moment because in one, at one point, one of the girls, she's passing out and the mother never knew that. She never knew that her daughter was passing out on the bus. And so by showing her this video, she was able to learn that, Jake. Well, Shimon, you've done such a, a powerful job uh, advocating for these families and advocating for the facts and the truth. And um, honestly, just the, the behavior by so many officials uh, in Texas is just absolutely disgraceful. I do not know how they sleep at night. Shimon Prokopes, um, you can see his whole story uh, on the whole story, surviving Uvalde inside a school shooting this Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern. It's only on CNN. Shimon's work has just been remarkable. Coming up next, remembering the legendary life of NFL great Jim Brown, who we just learned passed away. Stay with us. And our sports lead, some sad news just into the lead. Jim Brown, the former NFL star and prominent civil rights activist, has died. He was 87 years old, according to his former team, the Cleveland Browns. Brown, of course, set a number of football records before retiring uh, abruptly, rather, at the age of 30. He wanted to focus on the civil rights movement as well as an acting career he Starred in the 1967 World War II movie The Dirty Dozen before going on to appear in more than 50 other films. He also, of course, made a very impressive mark as a civil rights activist. He worked with inner city gang members and with prison inmates. The NFL just honored Brown in a tweet writing, quote, One of the greatest players in NFL history, a true pioneer and activist, Jim Brown's legacy will live on forever. Our thoughts go out to Brown's family and friends and fans. May his memory be a blessing. In the next hour, the remains of a U.S. Marine veteran who was killed in Ukraine will be returned here to the United States. 50-year-old Grady Kirpass went to Ukraine in the early days of Russia's invasion. At the time, he wanted to help Ukrainians who were evacuating their country by the thousands, Ukrainian civilians. He also wanted to help train Ukrainian soldiers. But on April 26th last year, Kirpass went to investigate gunfire in southern Ukraine, and he came under heavy gunfire himself, and that was the last day anyone heard from him. According to the Veterans Group Weatherman Foundation, which helps repatriate Americans killed or wounded in Ukraine. I want to bring in Brady Kirpass's sister, Teresa Irwin, plus the president of the Weatherman Foundation, uh, Megan Mobs. Thanks so much to both of you for being here. I'm so sorry that it's under these uh, circumstances. Teresa, your brother, he retired from the Marines about six months before Russia's war began. He had experience in the infantry as a scout sniper. Uh, tell us about his motivation going to Ukraine. Right. Well, um, basically, I feel that my brother had a lot of hardships just, you know, from the very early stages coming coming on from being adopted, not knowing your birth parents, and really having to having to just adjust when people pick on you because you're different, you look a certain way. Um, I, I think that stuck with him. And when he saw what was going on in Ukraine, he really did see people that were having their basic civil rights and liberties taken from them. They were disenfranchised. These were civilians, women and children, Um, that were not able to protect themselves. Um, And, uh, you know, my brother loves and loved this country, but um, he really is a citizen of the world. 
he would go anywhere and do anything for, for someone where he felt there was an injustice being done. He sounds like a remarkable man. Megan, your foundation worked for months uh, to find his remains. Um, that must have been an impossible process, especially taking place in the middle of a brutal war. We were extraordinarily grateful for so many veterans that came alongside this mission, for the Ukrainian partners we had on the ground that understood the service and sacrifice of Grady, and the work that we all did together to bring him home was imperative. As a fellow veteran and a Tillman scholar, uh, it became something that we pursued every day in order for his family to have this closure. And Teresa, you mentioned your brother was adopted uh, as a boy from Korea, uh, and of course went on to become a decorated Marine veteran. He was a 2009 Tillman scholar named after Pat Tillman, the NFL player who enlisted in the Army after the 9-11 attacks and, and was killed in a friendly fire incident in Afghanistan. How do you want everybody watching right now, how do you want him to be remembered? Um, I guess I would just say that, yes, beyond being a decorated Marine, um, we're a family just like any other family. You know, he's a beloved son and brother, a husband, a devoted father. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a very big loss, not just to our country, but for us as individuals. Um, I hope that people remember him and keep his memory alive. I'd like to see just him be honored for the sacrifice that he's made. And um, we're going to do our hardest to keep telling stories. And I feel now I've been able through this tragedy to connect with individuals where his um, United States Marine Corps uh, brothers are becoming part of my family. Well, we're going to remember the name Grady Kerpass and uh, mm -hmm. Teresa Irwin and Megan Mobbs. Thank you. Thank you both for coming forward uh, during such a difficult time. Thank you. Thank you. D.C. police today arrested one of their own, a police lieutenant accused of lying to the feds about January 6th and his communications with the leader of the far-right militia, the Proud Boys. Michael Fanone was, of course, a D.C. police officer when he was assaulted on January 6th. He knew the lieutenant. We're going to talk to Fanone coming up. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a D.C. police officer in charge of intelligence was arrested and charged today in terms of obstructing and helping a leader of the far-right group, the Proud Boys. What sensitive information did he allegedly share? Plus, the leaders of the Arab world welcoming brutal Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad back into their clutches with open arms after his more than a decade of murdering his own people and displacing hundreds of thousands of other Syrians. And leading this hour, a Massachusetts judge deciding the 21-year-old airman Jack Tashira will stay behind bars while awaiting trial. Tashira charged with leaking troves of sensitive classified documents online. In addition, he was allegedly not particularly shy about his love of guns and racist and anti-Semitic views. Now Air Force memos show his supervisors had previously warned him three times to stop deep diving into classified material. They even offered to train him on a new job after his first two warnings. Seen as Jason Carroll's outside the courthouse in Worcester, Massachusetts. Jason, what was the judge's reasoning for not letting him out? 
Well, at one point, Jake, during the proceeding, uh, the judge in this case, David Hennessy, he raised his voice and said that this is a defendant who simply did not care about who he put at risk. And as a result of that, letting him out on bail presented too much of a risk to the United States. He said the following. He said, records show a profound breach of the defendant's word that he would protect information and the security of the United States. The judge in this case, David Hennessy, also went on to talk about who this defendant had hurt by releasing those troves of, of classified documents online, saying, who did he put at risk? You can make a, a list as long as a phone book, soldiers, medical personnel, Ukrainian personnel, Ukrainian soldiers. We don't know how many people he put at risk. He went on to say, the government has said, if you disclose this information, you put the United States at serious risk. And the defendant's response was, I don't give up expletive you can fill in the blank there now the defense for its part had argued that the defendant in this case did not try to flee when he's arrested he also brought up uh, the defendant's uh, uh, attorney had also brought up that uh, his parents had put up their homes as collateral but the judge he acknowledged that saying I'm aware of all that but at the end of the day releasing him just presented too great a risk Jake. Jason, did the judge say anything about Tashira's uh, extremist views? He did. I mean, he did. This was something that was brought up during, during the hearing as well. When we're talking about extremist views, remember, uh, he had presented online these very extremist views, doing searches for about mass shootings, uh, using racial slurs, using ethnic slurs, things like that. And the judge talked about this obsession that he had with guns. He said, some people like guns, some people like coins. There is nothing wrong with that. But based on the defendant's writings, the searches, there appears to be an unhealthy component to that. And I want to bring up one other point, Cenk, if I may. Uh, the judge at one point also had indicated that he had struggled with part of this, saying that he knew or that he really felt uh, if he had let him out on bail that this defendant in all likelihood would have adhered to the conditions of the bail, but then he said the following. He said, but then when I look at him and I think, what if I'm wrong? What are the consequences of my decision? Jake. All right, CNN's Jason Carroll outside the courthouse in Worcester, Mass. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Jack Deshira wasn't exactly hiding his far-right views of the many warning signs the Washington Post obtained. This video shows him spewing vile anti-Semitic and extremist views while firing his gun. Post also interviewed friends of Tashira who say he used the term race war quite often. He even referred to himself as racist. CNN's Oren Lieberman's at the Pentagon with some new reporting. Oren, you found that there was actually a Pentagon working group formed in 2021 to try to identify members of the military, military who had extremist views such as Tashira. Jake, this, when you look back at it, looks like an effort that was tailor-made to find and detect someone with a supremacist ideology or an extremist ideology, like we're seeing, especially in that video from Jack Tashira, and at least give the military options on how to deal with it. And yet, two years later, in speaking with uh, military officials and others familiar with the matter here, this effort was effectively abandoned, even though it had a focus on, for example, training on extremism, insider threat programs, 
military uh, justice and policy and more. Again, efforts that seem almost tailor-made to have dealt with a case like this. In fact, when we asked the Pentagon earlier this week where this effort stood, they said that two years later, only one of those had been completed, the part on training, while they said the other five had people assigned to it. So how did we get to this point? Extremism was one of the first issues Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin tried to deal with when he came in in January 2021. This is just several weeks after January 6th, and there was essentially a two-part effort here. One was the Countering Extremist Activity Working Group, and the other was Bishop Garrison, who was put in charge of that uh, group, a black West Point graduate who had served two tours in Iraq. But soon after coming into the position, Garrison came under a withering barrage of attack from some Republicans as well as right-wing media for, tre- uh, for tweets he had posted before coming into this position, critical of former President Donald Trump. And the sources we spoke with essentially say that the attack was so long that eventually Garrison lost the support of those here in the Pentagon, and not only did he go away, but so too did the effort he was working on, Jake. What happened to these efforts to counter extremist activity within the military? The Countering Extremist Activity Working Group put out its report in December 2021. It tried to offer a better, more usable, more specific, exact definition of what extremist activity is, but officials we've spoken with say it effectively fell flat. Another source familiar with the matter said it became clear that the Pentagon was going to focus its changes on incremental changes and changes at the margin instead of trying to deal with big changes to this big issue because it became politically too difficult to deal with and there were simply other things higher on the agenda. The Afghanistan withdrawal, sexual assault and harassment, preventing uh, suicides, for example. Jake, the key question here, would this have stopped the Shira? One official we spoke with said it's unclear to answer in a specific case, but it may have stopped other Tashiras. CNN's Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thanks so much. Uh, Joining us now to discuss this case, CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller and CNN National Security Analyst Julia Kayyem. John, clearly the judge uh, didn't think Tashira would keep his word if he were allowed to be released before trial. Well, I think the judge is looking at a pattern of uh, youthful, irresponsible, immature, and unpredictable behavior when you see the breadth of this case, the amount of material leaked, the sheer sensitivity of the material leaked, the high classification of the material leaked, and look, it makes sense on paper. He's got roots in the community. He's got a mom and dad who love him, who live in the neighborhood. Uh, They're going to watch him at home. He would wear an ankle monitor. Uh, they would be responsible for him. He's actually not a bad case for bail, as Magistrate Hennessy said. But we all know the story of Edward Snowden, who, you know, when he had the chance to escape, escaped to a hostile foreign power, Russia, um, with all the secrets he had and those in his head, um, which all could be shared with them. So I think this is a risk-reward uh, uh, matter for the magistrate, where he just said there's too much here to risk it. And Juliet, back to what Oren just reported. You used to work at the Department of Homeland Security. Um, is it even possible to vet government officials for extremist views? It's, it would be very hard. I mean, you'd have to do, we just don't have the resources to do that kind of social media search or the dark web search or even the gaming search if we see in this case. Look, what the Pentagon won't say is uh, that, They've got a recruitment problem in terms of their numbers. We are falling short. And so that means that they need to get people 
on board faster uh, than maybe a more rigorous review will allow. So you just have that tension between recruitment and then, of course, radicalization. But I will say, looking at this case and in many of these cases, this is a you know command staff problem. You know, one mistake may be I'm just looking at the wrong stuff. Uh, two reprimands, as we, as we know he's already had, is something weird is going on with this guy. By the third, when the when the uh, disciplinary officer says, why is he looking at things he shouldn't be looking at? Like red alarm should be going off at that stage. So I really view this as a command staff problem as much as a recruitment problem. John, the memos uh, show Tashira's supervisors believed he was, quote, potentially ignoring a cease and desist order he was given last September to stop deep diving into intelligence. So it's not like they weren't aware that this was a potential problem. It's pretty egregious. Why? Why didn't they take more serious action? So the why there, um, we don't have the answer to, but the why there is the answer to why is the commanding officer of um, that that uh, air base in Cape Cod on ice right now? Why is the executive officer on ice too? Why has that base been shut down from its intelligence collection um, and dissemination missions? Because uh, the Air Force and the Pentagon realized this was not a place that was operating under controls. As Juliet hit it on the head, any one of those three things should have been a referral to the base security officer and then a referral to OSI the Office of Special Investigations of the Air Force, to say, why is our techie, the guy who's supposed to make sure everything stays plugged in and the systems are running, why is he reading intelligence that has nothing to do with his job? Why is he showing up at a briefing and asking pointed strategic questions about an operation um, that are very specific? Why is he making notes from classified documents? That alone should have been enough to say, we're putting you on ice and we're going to have some serious questions about where did those notes go? What were they for? What, where did you put them? Um, and then the deep dive into his social media and into the rest of it. All of that should have happened way before this stumbled into the public arena. John Miller, Juliet Kayam, thanks to both of you. Coming up, a look at the sensitive information about the insurrection a Washington, D.C. police officer was allegedly sharing with the leader of the far right group, the Proud Boys, since convicted of sedition. Plus, a new Trump opponent makes it official, gets into the 2024 Republican presidential race, while another potential candidate is about to jump in himself. In our Law and Justice League, shocking news today, a D.C. police lieutenant in charge of intelligence has been arrested and charged with lying to federal investigators about his communications with Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio, who was indicted and then convicted of sedition. The indictment lays out a series of encrypted text messages between Lieutenant Shane Lamond and Tarrio sharing sensitive information about the January 6th Capitol insurrection investigation. Back in March, Tarrio was convicted of seditious conspiracy for his role in the Capitol riot scene. Paula Reed is with us now. Paula, what kind of information was Lamond, who was head of intelligence, supervisor of intelligence for the Homeland Security Unit of the Metropolitan Police Department here in D.C.? Was, what was he sharing with the Proud Boys? Uh, this indictment, Jake, is unbelievable. And for anyone who doesn't know, the Proud Boys are a self-professed Western chauvinist 
group and Lamond is a 24-year veteran of the police and as you noted at the time he was head of the intelligence division of the police department and according to this indictment Lamond was in touch with Tario dating all the way back to July 2019 sharing information with him about law enforcement activities related to the Proud Boys and even about Tario himself they co- they communicated approximately 500 times Now, in December 2020, shortly after the 2020 election, Tario uh, stole and burned a Black Lives Matter flag from a church. Now, he was eventually arrested and charged with that offense. But this indictment reveals that Lamond was sharing information about that ongoing investigation with Tario as it was happening, including apparently tipping him off about his imminent arrest. Now, after January 6th, the two continued communicating, and according to these indict- this indictment, he would text him, for example, Lamont said, quote, how are you holding up? I checked on your charges, and the possession of high-capacity mags is a felony. That went on January 7th, later that day. Tario texted him, saying, hey, I have someone you guys might be looking for. She had Maryland police go to her house yesterday. She thinks they came because of capital stuff. Copy. Not that I'm aware of offhand, but I will check. I know you are working on identifying a number of people. Let me know if she's on your list. I'll have her turn herself in. Later, Tario, he wrote Tario and said, nope, not on her list, but obviously didn't ask who it was or follow up to get any additional information about how this person could have been involved. Now, again, this is pretty incredible. I mean, this is a law enforcement official sharing this with someone who has been at that point arrested and charged for another offense and then is involved in one of the most high-profile criminal investigations in the country. Now, Lamont has been charged with one count of obstruction of justice and three counts of making false statements because eventually, Jake, when he was asked about all this by investigators, he misled them. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Uh, Here to discuss is Michael Fanone. Uh, former D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer and CNN Law Enforcement Analyst. So Michael, you actually know Shane Lamond. Um, what do you know about him, and does this surprise you? Um, well, I, I had a few occasions to, uh, to meet with, with Shane. Uh, we never worked together in the same units. Um, but I spent two decades with the Metropolitan Police Department working in primarily proactive units that were intelligence-driven. So I'm very familiar with source work, uh, developing, um, cooperating witnesses, cooperating informants, sources. And I think that, um, well, first, I think it's important to understand who Shane is and what his position was within the department. Um, Shane Lamont was a lieutenant, a veteran officer with the department who worked uh, as the head of our uh, intelligence office. Um, That's a citywide unit that's charged with collecting, vetting, Uh, and then potentially disseminating intelligence uh, that's gained from a whole host of different sources, whether it's uh, social media, human intelligence. um, So he might have been trying to get information from Enrique Tarrio is what you're saying. I mean, correct. And, you know, there are aspects of the uh, indictment when I read it that I think the average person would find to be incredibly troubling. Statements that were made that seem to... um, suggest that uh, Lieutenant uh, Lamond was sympathetic to um, Enrique Tario or the Proud Boys. It's a possibility. That being said, um, if you work with sources, you know that you know, it's really all about manipulation. Your job is to extract intelligence 
lying to them, making them feel as though you're, they're your friend is part of that job. So that's interesting because there is this, this um, conversation uh, two days after January 6th. Um, Lamont says, looks like the feds are locking people up for writing of capital. I hope none of you guys were among them. Tario says, so far from what I'm seeing and hearing, we're good. Lamont says, great to hear. Of course, I can't say it officially, but personally, I support you all and don't want to see your group's name or reputation dragged through the mud. So you're saying it's possible that this is Shane Lamont actually just doing his job. He doesn't actually believe, he doesn't actually like the Proud Boys. He's, you're, you're just saying it's a possibility he was, suge- he was saying that to Enrique Tarrio as part of his efforts to get information. Absolutely. Um, and again, it, it's, I don't know. I don't, it really, a lot of this comes down to what was Lieutenant Lamont's motivations throughout this. Um, you know, was he uh, naive? Uh, was he dumb or was he dirty? Um, I think that, you know, some of the questions that I have after reading through the indictment is, was Shane Lamont um, documenting these interactions with Enrique Tarrio? Um, was he disseminating that information throughout the department? Uh, and other questions I have are, are why was he uh, suggesting to Tario to switch to encrypted apps rather than um, continue the exchange on a platform that would allow for the documentation of those uh, communications? If you work in source work like I did, you know that you have to document each interaction that you have with the confidential informant. Um, that's departmental policy. So. This is really interesting, uh, Mike, and I'm glad, I'm glad you're saying that. So I guess one of the questions I would have is, all right, if I'm Shane Lamond, I'm supervisor of intelligence for D.C. Uh, police, uh, Homeland Security, and part of my job is doing what you're saying, building sources, building trust, getting information, et cetera. Investigators come to me. Why not just tell them the truth? Because what he's, what he's charged with is actually, as far as I know, not tipping off uh, Enrique Tarrio. He's charged with obstruction of justice and lying to investigators, three counts of lying. So wouldn't investigators, wouldn't people in the FBI or uh, the Justice Department be sophisticated enough to know uh, what, if this is in fact him doing what you're giving him the benefit of the doubt, theoretically, you're saying it's a possibility. If he's just doing that, why not just say that to investigators who certainly understand the idea of building trust with bad guys? Yeah, I mean, again, that's, Part of this indictment that um, that raises eyebrows, um, and I find troubling. Yeah, um, it's not consistent with anything that uh, that I had ever done in the course of my career in working with uh, with sources. Yeah, because you would do the same, not the same thing, but you would try to build. I mean, again, when you when you're a cop and you're you're and you're working confidential informants. They're generally bad guys, right? I mean, that's the problem with uh, sometimes is you're not you know, making friends with a good Samaritan. You're making friends with people who are bad people. Correct. I mean, I, I had a judge one time tell me conspiracies born in hell rarely have angels as witnesses. Right. So that's the type of people that you're working with. Um, and again, you know, I've lied to sources. I've manipulated sources. Uh, but at the end of the day, I extract information. I don't provide them with information. Now, there are certain circumstances uh, some people were asking me today about, you know, why would he provide him information about an imminent arrest? Well, you know, there are people that uh, there are investigators in our department um, I could think of, you know, who would share that information with the defendant in the hopes that this individual uh, or to arrange for that individual to turn himself in. To make it peaceful so, that it, so, so no um, cop gets killed. 
I, I don't know. Uh, again, it comes down to what were Shane Lamont's motivations, what were his intentions. And I think he has some, you know, certainly has uh, to answer some questions. Yeah. Well, that's, that was really very interesting, uh, Michael Fanon. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. And I guess we're going to hopefully hear some answers uh, from Shane Lamond uh, to these questions uh, you have given everything. You know, can I add one more thing? Though, yeah, Jake? yeah. I think it's important to note as well that, um, you know, Shane Lamond was in charge of the Intel unit. Uh, and the Intel unit was at least in part responsible for the Metropolitan Police Department's posture on January 6th. And to remind everyone what the posture was that day, we were at full deployment. We had every single officer that was working. We were aware of the potential for violence on January 6th, at least a week in advance. Yeah, you guys were way ahead of where a lot of other people were, a lot of other law enforcement uh, and military uh, agencies. Um, Very interesting. Mike Fanon, always great to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, a key Biden ally telling CNN the real reason why President Biden wants to shake up the voting calendar heading into 2024. Candor. Coming, coming your way. Brand new to the 2024 race, Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. Senator Scott made it official with paperwork today. Sources say we're going to see the same next week from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He is reportedly telling donors that he is the only Republican who can actually win. Joining us now, Democratic strategist Karen Finney and Republican strategist Alice Stewart. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Alice, let me start with you since you're the Republican. Uh, Senator Scott entering the race with an optimistic message, a lot of charisma, and $22 million. Is, is this a possibility? Do you see a lane for him? There is a lane. Uh, it is a very narrow lane, but there is a lane for someone beside Trump and DeSantis. We've got a, law, a lot of time between now and the Iowa caucus and certainly the nomination process. Look, Tim Scott has all those things in his favor. As you're talking about, the money is awesome. He's got a, a tremendous war chest. But his optimism is great. His kill him with kindness uh, uh, personality is going to be extremely beneficial on the campaign trail and in his ability to do retail politics. But he is liked in his state. He is respected here on Capitol Hill. And one of the things he has is ace in the hole as he goes into Iowa. He has a really good relationship with Senator Joni Ernst. And she is working him around uh, the powers that be in the state of Iowa, which is extremely critical. And getting a first good step out in Iowa is really key to him. But, you know, the the good thing is what he is doing, he's not really beating up on Republicans right now. He's showing a contrast with the Democrats and what he sees as uh, the party of uh, victimhood and uh, uh, division. And I think he's got a, a, a good opportunity because of his ability to engage in retail politics. So Florida Governor DeSantis, we are told, will announce his candidacy next week. Uh, Mm -hmm. Here is what he had to say in first in the nation primary state, New Hampshire, earlier today. To be a front runner, it's easy to go out and take positions that are really popular at the time. It's harder to dig in and really cut against the grain. Not going to be easy, uh, but I honestly believe that uh, that we have an opportunity to right the ship uh, and to get this whole country going. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. I know you're not a fan. I know you're a fan. Okay, Take okay. off your Democrat hat for I, one second, just as, as a, as a, just as yeah. a political analyst. He has a message that one could say, like, he's in there actually doing stuff. Yeah. Well, okay, but you have to look at what he is doing right. and how the voters in his state perceive what he's doing. I mean, obviously... Take a, if you go back to Tim Scott, they are running in very different lanes in the Republican primary. Now, the question becomes, 
where is the Republican primary electorate? And I think the problem for both of them, at least in this moment, is support for Trump seems to be deepening and hardening, despite the fact, the fact that he's been indicted and uh, found guilty uh, in another case. And we now know that in August we'll have potentially another uh, indictment coming forward. So, in Georgia, you're the, from Fal- Georgia. the Fulton County race. Yes. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I, I think that's the, the challenge for both of them. But sure, I mean, the question is going to be, though, for DeSantis, can he sell that agenda, you know, make America like Florida? I think he said something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Can you sell that to a general election electorate? And the last thing I'll say quickly on, on DeSantis is, the thing about this Disney announcement today where they said they're pulling this billion-dollar effort to build uh, office space, that is in part similar to something that happened during COVID when he took on the cruise line industry, where he's putting his ideology ahead of economic development and mm. jobs. I don't know if that's going to wear well. Uh, he's got a good message in terms of what he has been saying in terms of, look, in order to govern, in order to lead this country, you have to win. You have to accomplish things. You have to be able to get things done. And he is showing against Donald Trump, governing is not about social media. It's not about building a brand. It is not about your personal grievances. It is about winning. And and DeSantis's message on putting the culture of losing behind the Republican Party Mm -hmm. and getting to the culture of winning... That is where Republicans want to go. So wait, Karen, I want to change the subject because there's this uh, great interview that Chris Wallace did with Jim Clyburn, the congressman from South Carolina, the dean of the delegation, one of the senior uh, Democrats in the House. Um, Obviously, South Carolina helped propel Joe Biden to the the Democratic nomination in 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, And Clyburn, as is his want, was pretty candid with uh, Chris Wallace when talking about uh, why Biden doesn't necessarily want Iowa or New Hampshire to be the first races in the Democratic contest why he wants South Carolina. Take a look. I don't think you're stacking the deck. I think you're avoiding embarrassment. And that is what he is attempting to avoid here. And I would expect anybody to do the same. And and you think that Iowa and New Hampshire present the possibility of embarrassment for President Joe Biden? Well, if you do not have the demographics as required for Democrats in the general election, and neither one of those states uh, have the Democrat, uh, the uh, demographics uh, that um, uh, are favorable to Democrats in the general. Okay, first of all, let me just yeah. say, that's true about Iowa. That's not true about New Hampshire. Yeah. Democrats have won New Hampshire over and over and over again in presidential contests. Yeah. But more importantly, I mean, Clyburn, <laughs> Clyburn is saying, yeah, we didn't want to risk Joe Biden losing or having an embarrassing win in Iowa, New Hampshire. I actually take a different view of what he said, having been in this since 2005, when we first moved South Carolina and Nevada up. The Mm -hmm. whole goal, remember, after 2004 with John Kerry's loss was we have to have our candidates competing in more diverse electorates to show their strength. We saw that in 2016, one of the advantages that Hillary had, she did not as well early on, but then grew strength from South Carolina and Nevada and showed that she could win a diverse electorate, which as a Democrat, you have to do. I think that's part of what he was trying to say in the second part of his answer, that it's about demographics. I don't know that I agree that it would be about being embarrassed as much as I think for our party, we have to show strength early on with all kinds of voters. Refreshing honesty about this would be embarrassing if, if the Biden were to lose the first two states. But look, hats off to uh, Congressman Clyburn. His endorsement for Biden was invaluable. And if he is able to use that as an opportunity to move South Carolina up further in the primary process, good for him. But it mm. also sort of indicates that his endorsement was 
more transactional as opposed to ideological. But if he can do that, good we, stuff. We, got, we, got, we yeah. got to go there. But uh, great stuff. Thank you so much, guys. Karen Finney and Alice Stewart embracing a killer. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad getting a warm welcome from other Arab leaders, despite, you know, killing thousands of his own people. Stay with us. In our world lead, what the United States calls an affront to human rights and basic dignity, and it's hard to argue, Iran state news media says three men who took part in the country's recent protests were executed today. Amnesty International says their convictions were rushed and based on confessions obtained through torture. Also, very, very easy to believe. Iran claims that these three men who were executed took part in a deadly attack on security guards during last year's nationwide protests. Iran has spent months stamping out protests. Protests over the death of Masa Jina Amini, a young woman who died in the custody of the so-called morality police after being picked up for not wearing her headscarf correctly. Also in our world lead, a jarring contrast at today's Arab League summit in Saudi Arabia. Even though they welcomed Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, the Arab League, 22 Arab countries in the Middle East and Africa, also welcomed back into their bosom brutal, ruthless dictator Bashar al-Assad of Syria, who has been an unwelcome global pariah since Assad began slaughtering his own people in 2011. CNN's Jamana Karache spoke with Syrian refugees who are frankly just sick and discouraged by the Arab League's attempt to normalize a man that they see as a monster. Assad or we burn the country, vowed his supporters. And the country burned. It was a regime's existential battle where no holds were barred. Hundreds of thousands of lives lost, maybe many more. And millions forced into a miserable existence, far from home, victims of a civil war. Their pain was the world's to see. Atrocities so shocking, yet the world did little. Twelve years on, Assad still denies attacking civilians and claims he was fighting terrorism. Now the ruthless president who unleashed hell on his people with the help of his ally Russia is not only a free man, he's now welcomed in some world capitals with red carpets and handshakes. This is about the man who is responsible for the pain and for the suffering that I've been going through in the past 10 years. Wafa Mustafa counts the days since she last saw her father. More than 3,600 days of searching, waiting, campaigning. Ali Mustafa vanished into the black hole of the regime's prison system, one of more than 130,000 forcibly disappeared by the regime. Instead of normalizing Assad now after 12 years, they should have, you know, held him accountable for the war crimes they've committed, for the war crimes that he is, most importantly, for the war crimes he is still committing. Bringing Bashar al-Assad back into the regional fold, Arab leaders argue, is for stability in the Middle East, is for an end to a refugee burden its neighbors say they no longer can bear. Those who survived his brutal battle for survival now face a new Middle East, a new reality where they fear they may be forced back to the horrors of Assad's regime. It's a monstrous regime in every sense of the word. I'm from Idlib, where he used chemical weapons and banned weaponry against us. 27-year-old Nabil al-Uthman is a former rebel, now an activist. Like millions of other Syrians, he found safety in Turkey, 
but with anti-immigrant sentiments on the rise and the fate of Syrian refugees now at the heart of the country's political debate, Syrians feel their safe space is shrinking. Even if the whole world normalizes this regime, Syrians will never trust it. For me, going back to this monstrous criminal is impossible. If I return, I'll be sent straight to jail, torture, and to my death. For more than a decade, they begged the world to end their nightmare. But they were left to face it all alone and now face a world where their oppressor got away with it. I think that instead of welcoming Assad um, to, uh, to Riyadh, I think he should be welcomed to the ICC. There is still this hope that, that you know, my father will be free. I, I might be able to save him one day. But, you know, normalization feels like the end of everything. It feels like the end of this hope. It feels like the end of, you know, what 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 started in, in 2011. And it feels like the end of my life. And, Jake, victims of the Syrian regime are describing this sort of victory lap by Assad today as a painful, shameful and just terrifying moment. And they're also questioning what message this sends to autocratic regimes around the world that continue to terrorize their own people. This is a man whose regime is accused of well-documented war crimes and crimes against humanity. And not only does he appear to have gotten away with it, he's welcomed with red carpets, embraces and handshakes. And these victims tell us, Jake, that their only hope for any sort of justice and accountability in the future is the West that continues to shun Assad and treat him as a pariah. Absolutely shameful. Jamana Karachi in Istanbul. Thank you so much. Florida is the latest state to target medical care for transgender kids. We're talking to a doctor of adolescent medicine about uh, what this new ban might mean for patients. In our healthly, Texas and Florida are two of the latest states to ban minors' access to gender reassignment surgeries and puberty-blocking medication and hormone therapies. At least 128 bills targeting these kinds of treatments for transgender individuals have been introduced in 33 state legislatures across the U.S. this year, according to the ACLU. We're going to talk about this now with Dr. Meredith McNamara. She's an assistant professor at the Yale School of Medicine and an adolescent medicine specialist. So, Dr. McNamara... There are probably viewers out there who think, look, people under 18 are too young to have these treatments, some of which seem irreversible. Um, what would you say to them? Well, Jake, thanks for having me. I, I just want to jump straight into this. Um, you're never too young to know who you are. Um, and the other thing I would just say is that the medical protocols that are used to treat transgender youth are very safe, thoughtful, and individualized. As a physician, I have full faith and confidence in the medical care that we provide. So what about those out there who might think, okay, maybe puberty blockers and hormone therapies would be okay for people under 18, but gender reassignment is such a, is such a drastic measure because it, it seems so permanent. Uh, it, it makes sense to hold off. What would you say to them? Well, permanent change is oftentimes what people who experience gender dysphoria need and want to thrive. Um, And the level of state intrusion into medical decision making and best practice is really jarring. I've never practiced medicine in a time where this is happening. Um, The way that uh, some of these uh, governors and legislators talk about this, they depict it as... um, warped, sick parents and warped, sick doctors 
preying on and mutilating children. Um, as somebody who deals with this kind of situation uh, with kids with gender dysphoria and the like, how do you see it? Uh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it's so jarring to hear it said like that. But yeah, that's please understand. What, that's not my. I, I, I'm. I'm. I'm just saying. This is how conservative Republicans out there in Florida and Idaho. Are, that's how they talk about this publicly. Yeah, it's it's really scary to hear those ideas take root. Um, transgender young people are some of the strongest, most um, vibrant and exciting patients and that I've had the pleasure of working with. Their families are caring and strong. Their clinicians, um, my colleagues, are compassionate and um, the types of people that you want to have your back, the type of people that you want to live in your community. So, um, you know, that narrative, it's just wrong. Do any of these individuals um, that you see passing these laws, have they ever reached out to you? Have they ever tried to understand what's going on? Have they ever, um, in, in, as far as you know, as somebody active um, in the community to, to, to do these health treatments, um, is there ever like a, trying to understand um, what's going on uh, in your experience? Yeah, there is a transnational campaign of disinformation. Disinformation is false information. It's intentionally spread to mislead people. Um, state legislators and governors and attorneys general have access to good sound information in the jurisdiction of these bans, they choose not to engage with experts who can provide them the right information, who can tell them that gender affirming care is valuable to trans youth, that it saves lives, that it helps youth live um, authentic and healthy teenage years so that they turn into healthy, functional teenage adults or adults, excuse me. But um, yeah, no one's ever reached out to me. No one's ever reached out to my colleagues. Um, no one's ever uh, really taken seriously the positions of every major medical organization, which has endorsed the importance of this care. So I'm really glad you asked that. Well, I'm glad that we reached out to you, and I hope you'll come back. Dr. Meredith McNamara, thank you so much. Thank you. Coming Bye. up next, Harry and Megan denied the strongly worded statement their representatives received to their special request. Plus, Wolf Blitzer has a look at what's coming up tonight in the Situation Room. Wolf? Jake, I'm going to get some insight into the debt ceiling standoff from the former U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers. Those talks, as you know, pausing today after the two sides hit several major snags. And that puts a deal out of reach by this weekend, and that's less than two weeks before the potential default deadline. I'll ask the former secretary how President Biden should handle the current impasse and whether he could even sidestep the negotiations entirely by invoking the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, as some Democrats are demanding. All of that and a lot more coming up right at the top of the hour here in the Situation In our pop culture lead, Harry and Meghan are demanding that the photo agency whose paparazzi chased them in New York City this week hand over the photos from the chase. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex's uh, legal team asked for the photographs in a letter, but lawyers for the U.S. photo agency, which is called Backgrid, evoked the American Revolution in their response, saying, quote, perhaps you should sit down with your client and advise them that his English rules of royal prerogative to demand that the citizenry hand over their property to the crown were rejected by this country long ago. We stand by our founding 
fathers. That's a nice way to stand by your paparazzi, I guess. While Backgrid has opened an investigation into the pursuit, the agency says there were no near crashes during the incident. Sunday on State of the Union, Republican Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana and more. That's Sunday morning at 9 and noon Eastern. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky if you have an invite. And the TikTok, I'm back on it, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode, you can listen to the lead once you get your podcasts. All two hours just sitting there like a delicious summer fruit salad. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. See you Sunday morning. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.